Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. In this, the very first podcast, I chat with Amy Kosky at the Oregon Health and Science University about CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. Amy is the lab manager at the Center for Embryonic Cell and Gene Therapy at OHSU. The lab made headlines in August 2017 when they successfully repaired heart disease genes in human embryonic cells using CRISPR-Cas9. So what is CRISPR-Cas9? CRISPR is an acronym that stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Basically, they're short repeated bits of DNA in a sequence. And they were first discovered in the early 80s by scientists studying archaea, which are single-celled organisms that have been around for at least 2.7 billion years. Archaea are super simple organisms, and they don't have an immune system like we do. Instead, they take DNA snapshots of the viruses that infect them, kind of like those do-not-sell-to-this-person Polaroids posted in convenience stores. So if a virus tries to stroll into a bacterial cell, Archaea can identify and attack it right away based on those snapshots. And those snapshots are called CRISPRs. To take the snapshots, Archaea use an enzyme called Cas9 to precisely slice the viral DNA. Researchers saw this and realized right away that Cas9 could be used to target and remove specific genes in a DNA sequence. And since then, they figured out how to use it to do just that and how to make replacements for the genes they cut out. At OHSU, they figured out how to target a gene that causes hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a serious heart disease that affects people in early middle age. Because it doesn't strike until later in life, many patients don't know they carry the gene until they've already passed it on to the next generation. So the mutation persists in the population. The lab, led by Dr. Shukrat Metalopov, used Cas9 to snip the gene out of a developing embryo, then the cells in that embryo repaired themselves using a healthy copy of the gene from the other parent. So in this interview, you'll hear us talking about embryos, but we're really only talking about eight cells in total. So it's very early on in development. And then after that, the experiment is over. They haven't gone any further than that. Um, they've only managed to repair the gene, like I said, in about eight cells, which is still a tremendous achievement, and we'll find out why in the interview. So without further ado, here's my chat with Amy Kosky at OHSU. My name is Amy Kosky, and I am the center manager and the clinical research coordinator for the Center for Embryonic Cell and Gene Therapy, working with Dr. Metalopov. I've been here for roughly about four years. And um, we are deep into figuring out how to cure and end suffering of inherited diseases. And so specifically, I think that, you know, the first trial that hit the news back in August that was successful was um, treating um, uh, myocardiopathy. 
Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Correct. Which is a, a weakening of the heart muscles, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. Um, and it's an inheritable disease. Okay. Correct. Um, and you, um, the, the study was able to correct the genes in vitro or in uh, while a fetus was developing. Um, so mm -hmm. is, we call it ex vivo. Okay. So there's no fetus actually developing at that time. But what we do is we correct it at the earliest stage of life. So when you're a one-celled zygote prior to fertilization, um, we're able to inject a CRISPR construct that was designed specifically for our donor and that specific mutation, the MYBPC3 mutation for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When we co-inject the CRISPR enzyme, along with the sperm in the process called ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, we are able to correct uh, the mutation in those developing embryos. And we can see that about three to four days after fertilization when we do molecular analysis. Okay, so essentially, um, essentially what you're doing with CRISPR is you're able to target the, let's just say, the defective gene, Correct. Uh, snip it out, and then uh, through there's sort of a natural process in that the DNA repairs itself using a copy from, um, I guess, the other parent yeah. that has a, a good copy of that gene, and it, it sort of swaps it in there. Exactly. The coolest part about what we found, and it was very unexpected, actually, is that when we put the CRISPR in, so the Cas9 acts as like molecular scissors. Um, the CRISPR, you could think of like a magnet. It locates what we want. It sticks onto it. The Cas9 comes in, literally induces a break in the DNA by cutting. And that break is then recognized by the machinery of the embryo itself and comes in and goes through HDR, directed repair. And it uses the maternal copy of the DNA, which is free of the mutation, and reassembles. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so in this case, this is, um, the repair happens naturally. Um, it sees, you know, a break in the DNA and there's a natural mechanism. Um, yes. For what I understand from other methods of using Cas9 is that you can actually um, program RNA that carries a completely different gene to go in and insert into what has been taken exactly. out. Exactly. So in theory, when CRISPR-Cas9 was developed, you design your CRISPR-Cas structure, and that includes a single-guided RNA. And you send that in, and that is the template that mm -hmm. after you make the cut, that it's supposed to recognize that template to correct itself, right, to mirror image. Um, in our situation, it absolutely doesn't happen. So we tried to put in uh, single guide RNA. We did inject it. We know it's there. Um, but the, the embryo machinery chose to use the full copy of the maternal DNA okay. over our synthetic guide RNA. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, okay. Uh, before we get too deep in the weeds, <laughs> I do want to get a little excited about it. Um, so let's take a step back and I will, um, let me explain sort of how I view CRISPR working, and then you can tell me whether or not 
I'm totally crazy or if it's <laughs> correct or not. So um, from what I understand, CRISPR is actually, um, is actually a, a bacterial, almost immune defense system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what, what a bacteria will do is it'll take a, a DNA snapshot of an invading virus um, and use that snapshot and next time that virus invades to basically defend itself against being infected and, and killed um, by the virus. Um, and part of how it does that is it, it's it basically analyzing, it's, it, it's just snipping a piece of the DNA out very, very precisely. Mm-hmm. And so when we're uh, using, when, when, we, when you're using CRISPR-Cas9, you're basically able to reprogram that Cas9 pair of scissors to snip out the piece of DNA that, that you're looking for. Yes. Um, and then the cell can either repair itself or, um, as we were just discussing, or you can engineer um, a, a new gene or different, or grab a different gene to, s- to insert back into the sequence. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. So but somatic cell therapy, right. right, which we're reading about in the news everywhere, in mm-hmm. mice or even in some human trials, is trying to do exactly what you talked about. They're locating something that has gone wrong, and then they're trying to fix it with a new template and saying, this is how you should be acting. This virus that you have or this cancer you have um, is inadequate, inappropriate, do this instead. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the embryo, when we try to use this template, it does not want to do that. It preferentially selects the other healthy copy of the DNA. And that's actually great, right? Because then we're not altering the human genome. We are just providing the mechanism to correct itself. That's really interesting. Um, now, obviously, uh, when the study was going forward, did you anticipate that it would self-correct, or were you thinking that you would have to have that extra set of the, the, the correct gene to put in there? So when we first began this study, it was very, very um, early in the whole CRISPR-Cas9 developing, and we definitely thought we needed the single-guide RNA. Uh, we looked, I mean, it was part of our design, and we worked extensively on building that template to try to give... Um, We didn't want to change what was already existing in the human population. We just wanted to correct back to what it is. So you make uh, multiple versions of that template with different base pairs and what will be accepted, what won't. Um, There was some literature early where they had seen this um, self-correction. So one of our newest postdocs that we have here actually observed this phenomenon in mice quite early using CRISPR in the embryo. Um, And she published that paper at our home institution. Uh, So there were kind of, you would think, whispers of this happening. We didn't think it would happen. Honestly, we weren't exactly sure what would happen. we, We anticipated results, but we definitely were guided by our first few studies, what we were seeing. Um, Mosaicism, right? Getting kind of an embryo that has some cells that are corrected and some cells that aren't corrected was also something that we were looking at. And it turned out that we were able to use um, mosaic embryos to tease apart this question. So we not only figured out how to stop the mosaicism, but also use the mosaicism 
to figure out the self-correction and the lack of the template being mm -hmm. used. So we're saying mosaic, uh, mosaicism. Yes. So a little background. So when you uh, have a developing fetus, there, I mean, how many dozens of cells, you know, in the very early stages, right? Um, and you try to apply uh, your Cas9 treatment, it may not take through all of the cells. Right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, I have. When you have this, what we have in the lab is a one-celled or a one-celled human egg, right, and the sperm. Mm -hmm. And when those come together, and you you fertilize, you quickly get two cells, and then four, and they go up. We stop at roughly eight cell stage. Six to eight cells is all that we have. So there is mm -hmm. no like fetal development. It's truly still sure. in the cellular development the stage. Okay. Um, and in those individual cells, it's possible that maybe one of the cells would show the corrected DNA, but another one would not. And that has always been the case with CRISPR-Cas9. So it's why um, when you're doing it in somatic cells outside of the embryo development, um, you are seeing they can't get 100% correction. Um, they're looking for efficiencies and trying to increase that efficiency. And in our case, you're never going to use the technique in an embryo and potential um, progeny and human child if it is mosaic, right? There's no purpose to engage in such a therapy if the outcome is no different than just having a baby through natural, um, natural means. So, it was imperative, actually, that we stopped this um, mosaic embryo from occurring. So we were able to do that when we injected at the time of fertilization. So once we saw that in the lab, that was like the first step. How do we stop this from happening? Because if we can't, we there's no reason to go forward. Mm -hmm. So we stopped that actually very easily. We were injecting um, after fertilization. We would get mosaic embryos. Then we injected at the same time as fertilization, and we had no mosaicism. So oh, it was fantastic. great. It okay. was this like, you know, glowing moment. We were all super excited, but then we couldn't figure out why we weren't seeing our template. Because in the template, we add in a marker that allows us to find it when we're doing sequencing. We could never find it. And it was like, what is happening here? We know that we have more wild type embryos something is working but what's working so we actually went back and created those mosaic embryos and analyzed every individual cell within that embryo and then that's when we determined like oh here is that mutant sperm we can see the mutation in one of the six blastomeres from the embryo but in the other five it's not there and so we knew that we were getting this maternal copy being mm. used to correct the embryo. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah. So in a lot of ways that makes it maybe a little bit more simple, at least in this specific case, you can just target the gene itself without having to worry about engineering the replacement RNA. Exactly. Right. It actually mm -hmm. does make it more simple because you're using the body's own natural machinery mm -hmm. to correct itself. We're not as humans inducing a change to become something different mm -hmm. we're just self we're inducing the body to correct itself okay yeah. that's very cool and and the mechanism for i guess that repair that happens is still a mystery we're not sure why 
um, why the developing cells are actually, or how they're grabbing that correct copy of the gene, or is it just something that happens naturally biochemically, or? So the know? why has not been teased out. I mean, mm -hmm. we could speculate that it, um, over the course of human history, it makes sense that if you, I mean, we know if you have a break in your DNA, there is machinery that will come in and it will correct that. Now, errors happen, errors happen, that's why we age, right? Those types mm -hmm. of things come into play. Um, it's not far-fetched to assume that this would happen. If you were a DNA machinery, would you rather select a 20 base pair thing to fix yourself or a complete copy? It, you can, I mean, so the answer is no. We don't know why, but it makes sense that it is occurring. Yeah, it's very yeah. cool. So it, it, it's a natural part of just gene repair. Correct. That is built into the system. Yeah. It's very good. Um, and so um, I, I want to jump back a little bit. You were talking about mosaic cells. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you wouldn't want that is because the um, mutated gene or the defective gene would be continued to be passed on. Correct. Right. So unless you get all of it, you're saying there's no, uh, there's not a good reason to go through with such therapy. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so what would happen though, if say that therapy was done and there was a mosaic result, would, um, y you know, would you get sort of, um, half of the the syndrome or you know with the heart like how would that well, we're so not really sure we're not sure what would occur right. um and there's uh there's a technique used in fertility clinics right now called a pgd so it allows you to develop the embryo take one of those cells that i was talking about the blastomeres and actually analyze what's going on in that specific um embryo so you would be able to tell like does this embryo contain the mutation or not and that's why we went through extensive rounds of our science and our data generation to prove that if you actually inject um, the CRISPR construct with the sperm we never saw mosaicism so it never happened and we did, you know, multiple, multiple cycles of this data generation. And it was a very important point um, to drive home that there, we really understand that if you do it this way, you're not going to have mosaic embryos. They're actually in our hands. It never occurred. That's so, amazing. Yeah. yeah. To have a 100 percent success rate. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was really incredible, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, and so that could be something that's super successful or, or very useful in um, when you're doing IVF. Correct. Say. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the mm -hmm. whole purpose of this scientific generation is, um, is to actually provide in the future a means for families who want to have genetically related children but carry these mutations in their family line and they want to stop it mm -hmm. and they want to have healthy children and they deserve that. And so we're providing another choice, another option, we hope in the future for these families, no matter what disease they carry, that if they wanna have a healthy genetically related child, they can come in and this is another one of their choices for their healthcare. Mm, that's very That's cool. the end goal. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and how it presents. Um, 
So it's a defect in the heart that leads to later in life um, heart troubles, basically. Um, so the gene can be passed on from generation to generation because the symptoms don't present until you're older. So you've already had children yeah. and passed the gene along. Exactly. So typically um, what we see in families is that somebody will come in and they'll have a history of like, oh, yeah, my mom died of a heart attack at kind of a young age for heart failure. Um, oh, yeah, Uncle Bob might have had a, some heart failure, too. And what they find is in their 30s or 40s that they are showing um, signs of heart failure or they themselves will have a very quick and unexpected um, heart attack. And then they end up being rescued, which is amazing because we have this great healthcare system. And usually some implants are put in to help regulate their heart rate. Um, the, what are they? The it, basically implanted defibrillators mm -hmm. to restart the heart. Um, but that's usually in your 30s or 40s. And most American families, most families in general outside of America and in the international world are having their families um, in their 20s and 30s. And so you've already established your, your children. You might have one, 10, 20 children, right? And you don't know that you carry this mutation yet. So you've already passed on this cardiomyopathy to your future mm -hmm. children. And then they might show the phenotype. They might not. But they will then be able to pass it on to their children. Mm -hmm. And so you have literally generations in a family who are suffering from the effects of this mutation, this sure. inherited mutation. And so what we hope to do is try to limit the number of future generations that have this mutation. So you can imagine, well, we don't need to imagine, it's happening right now if you look to places like India, where they actually have a very, very high prevalence of this specific hypertrophic cardiomyopathy the frequency of the mutation is increasing um, in the population. And so what you're having are more and more children who are then having their own children, and you're seeing this disease phenotype perpetuate through a population at a pretty rapid rate. Right now we're looking at heart disease being the number one um, disease in America. Um, so if we can start limiting sections of heart failure and heart disease, by monogenic inherited diseases and limiting the number of future generations that carry this mutation, we can start to bend the curve back, similar to when um, polio was out, right? Everybody wanted to come up with a way to eradicate polio, so we came up with a vaccine. Now, we're not proposing a vaccine here, but it's the same idea that if you can start stopping the number of people who will get polio, then you will limit the number of future people who will have that. So this gene therapy mm -hmm. in, um, in developing human embryos can have the same effect, we hope, as uh, vaccinations did. Okay. And it's an important distinction that I think you made there is that just because someone carries the gene doesn't mean that it will be expressed. Exactly. Right. So different inherited um, monogenic diseases have different phenotypic expressions. So some of them, if you are a heterozygous uh, carrier, meaning you carry one mutant copy, not two, um, you might not ever express the disease. However, when you have children, 
you could potentially have a partner who also carries a heterozygous copy, and then you can express a homozygous child who will definitely um, have the disease phenotype. Other inherited diseases, um, you do express when you carry one copy, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is one of those. So if you carry one mutant copy, you will eventually express the phenotype and Mm. have these issues. And that's why we're seeing it later in life, after Uh, people have already established families. Okay, and so this is a monogenic disease that we're talking about here, and you said there are tens of thousands of these that we know of yeah. so far that possibly could be treated using techniques similar to this. Exactly. Um, so in the news, we hear a lot about BRCA1 and BRCA2, the breast cancer genes, thanks to Angelina Jolie, right? She put it out there for all of us to learn about, which is great. And so women and men who carry this BRCA1 and BRCA2 um, will get cancer, um, primarily ovarian, testicular, and breast cancers. Um, it's a matter of when that will occur. So if you're a BRCA1 and BRCA2 carrier female, the likelihood of you having breast cancer in your 30s is 85%. And it just keeps continuing and going up. Now, breast cancer, we've gotten really good at detecting, really good at stopping, and um, the life expectancy out of that is really great. However, ovarian cancer is kind of a silent killer. By the time you locate it, it's usually too late. Mm -hmm. So these women who carry BRCA1 and BRCA2 are definitely having children before their 30s and 40s. Um, Sometimes not, sometimes later. But if you're in your 40s and you're a carrier, you've probably already expressed some type of cancer. So this could be used to stop the transmission of this mutation to future generations. And you can literally think about everybody wants to cure cancer. This mm-hmm. could be a cure for cancer for future generations. You are stopping it before mm-hmm. it happens. You're stopping it in one cell versus trying to cure cancer in trillions of cells in an adult who already has the disease. Okay. And, um, So now, I mean, there are tens of thousands of these diseases or genes that have been identified so far and more continue to be identified probably on a monthly basis now with how cheap gene sequencing and how how quick it is getting. Um, I guess a lot of people have a fear of like, where does it where does it stop and how do you draw the line between um, a disease and an enhancement? Yeah, and this is a tricky question, right? And uh, tons of bioethicists and families and scientists are trying to answer this question. I think it's actually pretty, I mean, in my perspective, in what I'm doing, it's a fairly simple answer for me. I want to provide choice to these families. And our center would really like to provide a choice that ends suffering. We're not looking at changing the color of your eyes or the color of your hair, Um, those kinds of enhancements are very different from what we're talking about here. We really are finding disease, disease phenotypes that are known. You know, we know that when you get Huntington's disease, which is another one of these inherited diseases, Mm -hmm. that you will have neurological problems. It's not a question of if, but when, right? So that's a lot of internal Mm -hmm. suffering for that family. Um, 
it's a pretty clear line for us. Clear you cut. provide a choice for healthcare options, right? This is another healthcare choice. Mm -hmm. And we're not saying everybody has to do this. We're saying, you know you carry an inherited mutation. And here's an option for you to help you have a genetically related child without passing that on. Now, there are diseases that um, get us closer to that enhancement versus um, therapeutic. So you start looking at muscular dystrophies. This is the one that I've been reading about. A lot of people have been talking about this, right? Muscular dystrophy, definitely a disease, definitely something that we will love to add into that list of 10,000, right? However, if you design a CRISPR construct that can snip out that mutation, the way that you would help these people is by generating more muscle mass, mm. right? So the th question then is, if somebody got a hold of that, if athletes got a hold of that, um, could they use it to, for enhancement? And that's a tricky question. And it is something that we need to continue to talk about. But when we think about making super, superhumans or hair color, eye color, those are almost impossible to do, right? Because mm. we're looking at one monogenic disease, right? One small mutation. We're not looking at multiple spots on multiple alleles. So when you make one cut, it happens with high efficiency. We see this correction. You start making multiple cuts in multiple places, you have no idea what's going to happen, and it's not going to be as efficient. And then that would also assume that we know all of those sequences to make those corrections. We don't. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see that being the future of humanity. I think we're better than that. Yeah, yeah, I see that. And and just from a technical standpoint, it seems almost impossible when you look at the number of variables that go into making a person or even a cat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to be able to you know, have this sort of island of Dr. Moreau, like almost Lego block like view of building creatures seems mm -hmm. completely, I mean, unthinkable. Like I don't, I don't, it, it doesn't seem As a scientist imaginable. doing this yeah. with some of the best people in the world, I cannot even imagine it being possible. Mm -hmm. It is highly tricky and we don't even know how to manipulate sequences that would reach desired effects. Mm. Uh, those are, um, and nobody's gonna spend money or fund that type <laughs> of research. <laughs> oh, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, I think um, for science fiction fans, that may be a hard pill to swallow, but um, it's, uh, it's kind of unfortunately, it's the way things are looking. Yeah. On the other hand, though, curing disease is is a sci-fi sci dream. I mean, uh, just fewer sick people is incredible. I mean, who doesn't want that? So yeah, and mm -hmm. you know, the changes that we're talking about won't just impact one person; they'll mm -hmm. continue to impact our population dynamics around the world. So if we can start removing the number of people who care—not removing the number of people, but the number of people who carry the mutations, right? by correcting that mutation prior to them being born with this disease, mm -hmm. then they don't, they no longer carry it to pass on to their family. Mm -hmm. And it's, it stops. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so I immediately think of the complexity involved and you're dealing with one gene and correcting one disease. 
I wonder, um, you know, obviously this is very, very super early in the research phase, but like, can we know ultimately even ch if changing one gene to fix this one inherited disease is not going to have other consequences? Like, given the complexity of the of the animal, the nature yeah. of, of what we're working with here, um, so that's I, just the question that I have. Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, the best answer is that the when we induce the change via the Cas9 making the break in that DNA, the rep the machinery that it chose to fix itself was the the DNA that's already existing in the human population, mm -hmm. we're not actually putting anything new into right. that DNA strand, right? So uh, when they met over two years ago at the International Committee on Medicine met to discuss about this, they talked about if this was going to go forward, that the change that you made has to be currently present in the human population, Right, so that DNA code that you put in should not be different than what we already are seeing in our very varied um, human population. So by inducing that break, and by that break being corrected with the maternal copy of the gene, we actually aren't changing anything that could be mm -hmm. skewed to cause off-target effects. And that's kind of what you're going at. Like we make one change, what else did we right. do by making that change? Okay. Um, because you're using that DNA copy already existing in the cell, you really are limiting uh, the potential negative consequences. Yeah, and it's almost as if, I mean, that could happen naturally anyway, right? It and does certain, happen, right? Right, which Aging. is why it's, yep. yeah, <laughs> or as we're used to saying, it's 8% of the population um, that you've studied would have this, particular gene, um, well, that's because it's not always expressed or passed down. Correct. So there's already some a little bit of a self-correction going on? Uh, no. So if no. you carry this mutation right. and um, you have a child, depending on how many copies of that mutation you have, whether it's one or two, heterozygous or homozygous, right. you will pass it on. There is no kind of... Um, correction happening in mm. the body the dna breakage machinery that we have um, naturally mm -hmm. is actually to protect us when um, we're exposed to sun right yep. so we have all sorts of dna breakage events that happen mm -hmm. in our somatic cells on a daily basis and our body comes in and says oh my gosh i know how to do this i'm going to fix you i'm going to use this copy mm -hmm. um and so that mechanism is well known in adults and you know people in your somatic cells. Trillions of cells are doing this every day. And when that goes astray is when you get things like melanoma, skin cancer. Skin, you know, mm -hmm. these are very um, tangible effects of our DNA machinery um, repair mm -hmm. mechanism breaking down. Uh, what is new here is that we're actually able to see that machinery happening um, in one cell and that is very cool yeah. and that is a, a really novel finding that came out of the science that we're very excited about yeah now there will be some instances where you're going to have a homozygous embryo 
right? So you will have two parents who carry a mutation, um, and there won't be a copy of this DNA sitting there. Um, and that's a big question, and we really want to answer that. And then that's when we will be using a template design. And how do we do that appropriately mm. and make sure that the embryo wants that template and that that template is representative of the healthy population already? Wow, okay, and that would be the next step because if, if, you, have, if you don't have um, a healthy copy of the gene to replace mm -hmm. the defective copy, you know, what happens? How does the machinery work? Exactly. Will it actually refer to that RNA sequence that you've engineered and in injected in and say, oh, look, that's, that's a good one. I'll, I'll grab that one. Yeah. Or will it ignore it completely and yeah. y there's nothing you can do? I mean, yeah, and yeah. we don't know yet. Yeah, we can wrap up. I just wanted to know um, what are the next steps now? Where do we go from here? Uh, so the next steps is we've done one study, right? And one study will never get us to a clinical trial. We need to improve all of our numbers. The um, We really want to improve the efficiency of what's happening. So we were able to correct roughly um, or 75%. Some of those were already wild-type um, non-carriers of the disease. A mutation. So we want to really increase that number and see if we can get the efficiency higher. We want to look at homozygous embryos. Um, we would love to start looking at other mutations too, right? So what we've done right now is say for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who carries MYBPC3 mutation, very specifically, we think we know a way forward. But we need to make that broader, right? Mm. We need to know the way forward. We need to have it safe and efficient. And we also need to start looking at other mutations to make sure what we saw in this mutation isn't just um, specific to that mutation site. We want to make sure that this can be used on any allele, any chromosome, and for any of those 10,000 mutations. After we stopped recording, we chatted a bit about PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is essentially screening embryos for genetic disorders before IVF implantation. The question was, why not just screen embryos instead of trying to fix them? Well, the goal, says Koski, is to eliminate the gene from the population entirely so that nobody has to worry about it in the future you're preventing untold amounts of suffering and also expense by removing the mutated gene from the family line. Now, of course, Koski and Metalopov aren't proposing that this sort of gene editing should be mandatory. They just want to give couples the option or the choice to do this kind of repair if they want. And like we said during the interview, there are more than 10,000 identified single-gene genetic disorders including cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, fragile X syndrome, muscular dystrophy, and Huntington disease. So the team at OHSU has their work cut out for them. You can learn more about me and this podcast at my website, dustindriver.com. Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we continue through the unknown.